citizens of the people's game, welcome back to another week of your favourite footy pod. We have a very, very special episode for you this week. Unlike any episode you've ever heard before, we are going to get in the booth. We're going to talk about Richmond for an hour and a half. So if you don't want to know the score, look away now. I'm leaving then if that's the case. I'm gone. Okay, I'll probably leave as well. <laughs> Actually, not that I, I, I didn't. Like, I produced this podcast, and that's definitely not what I had on the brief at the start of the podcast a couple of 50 episodes ago. So, like, yeah. Yeah, I think you meant to say West Coast there for an hour and a half. I was going to go press red for uh, Kevin JB, but KB was unavailable, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, So, no, this won't be a special episode where we talk exclusively about Richmond, just in case anyone's... We've probably already lost all our listeners, but I'm going to open up uh, with a quick question about your weekend in footy team. Case, how are you? How was your weekend? I'm well. I had a great weekend. Thanks for asking, JB. Had a uh, little writing sesh with you in the afternoon, which was lovely on Saturday. Wrote a poem. Stay stay tuned for more of yes, that later. I'm excited for you to share your work out of that session. Um, so that was lovely. First of all, how are you going? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, How's really the good. Uh, it's good. I've got a meeting with my surgeon uh, next Friday, and so that'll be pretty much the the line where we all meet up and say, "What's the plan of attack going to be? Are we going to really have a lash at this final series, or is it going to be more beneficial?" What's, for- what's in your mind? What when you go in? What's the thesis you're going to uh, push through? So, Gordo, you've got a cold pie this week. I have a cold pie. I'm joining the pie party. Mine is uh, essentially sports writers. Not journalists, because they're not doing their journalistic duty, in my opinion. Writing about medical uh, issues in sport. So we're going to talk about drugs in sport a little bit later on. Mine's my my little entree, my little cold pie, is uh, sort of do with Dale Morris. He re-injured his ACL on the weekend. He's off to go get uh, reconstructive surgery. Shoutouts. Hopefully, it all goes well for you, big fella. Um, the issue here is all of the storylines have come out since. So there's a lot of storylines around Alex Rance and his recovery process. Will he be back for finals? Those storylines are great. You know, there's a great redemption storyline to be written there. Medical redemption does his ACL, comes back, wins wins a flag for Richmond in the finals. You beauty, how good's Alex Rance? I don't, I don't mind that. That's a great story. To, that's a great narrative to overlay on the season. What I don't like is the fact that you'll use Alex, uh, you'll use Dale Morris's ACL injury as evidence in how you should treat Alex Rance as a patient, which makes no sense. So shout out to the People's Games doctor, uh, Jacob Jewson. He kind of brought this to my attention today, and it's kind of like when when writers and journalists come out and say, "Well, this kind is proof," and in a medical sense, it can't be proof. So. Where the issue comes in sport for mine is when these kind of stories get treated as like the ins and outs become like a news story. So it's like every Tuesday we get the injury list. What you don't get on that is actually like the patient sheet. So you're not the doctor that gets to sit at the end of the bed and go, oh, actually what you did was you have this kind of medical history and you've done this injury before and you have this propensity and this DNA and blah, blah, blah. You don't actually have the medical history, so you don't know how you would treat and how medicine works is that you take all the information possible and you make an educated decision. What the journalists aren't doing at the moment is making educated storylines. So the fact that Dale Morris did his ACL after not having surgery, after taking a very different approach to rehab, has nothing to do with how Alice Rance will return from his surgery on his ACL. Correct. Which at a very baseline is just poor journalism because you're making two connections between two very separate points. But in general, yeah. like all these storylines about like, did they rush him back and like, did they make a mistake and like, has the department made an error or whatever? You can write those stories, but you can't use injury numbers. So like, there is a story if someone wants to go do it, and I might go and try and do it in the Collingwood Football Club. So they've had the most injuries for the last three seasons. So there's a fact, and then you can go, 
okay, why did that happen? And the why part is journalism. But just saying they've had the most injuries, therefore their strength and conditioning and medical departments are poor is not journalism. Well, no, you've jumped. That's, you've just taken de- a that's deduction. Yeah. You're being Sherlock Holmes. It's, hard, it's funny with injury, injury reporting because very few journalists, I think, are experts in that sphere. Yeah. And the AFL journalists seem to write these stories without going and consulting experts often, particularly the speculative one. So I guess a contrasting example was the way that um, Trent Cotchin's hamstring was reported by Sarah Black from AFL.com, who basically just stuck to facts. Cochin has done two hamstrings. The third hamstring is in a different place. Richmond say that he will probably miss the next two weeks, two mm. to three weeks. So, like, just stick to the actual... Well, that's all... Like, if, mm, you're, doing yeah. a, if you're doing a hard news story on Cochin, that's all you need to know is that yeah. he's going to miss. This is how long for. This is what he did. That's the end of the story. The mm. rest is conjecture, unless you want to go and dig into the, well, did he do too much training load and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, and also... Do we need to know that? So Trent Cotchin doing a hamstring injury after a hamstring injury isn't a story because that's when you usually do hamstring injuries. Mm. But like After years of watching Richo, I know. But <laughs> Collingwood Football Club having the most injuries over an elongated period of time is a news story in the sense that there probably is something there. You just have to find out what it is. Yeah, correct. correct. And, and if they're not willing to give it forthcoming, then there probably is even more of a story there. But then that's up to you as a journalist to do your job and find the story. Even when people came out uh, last week and said, like, oh, why is Alex Rance running so fast so soon? Well, probably because the doctors have said he's allowed to run so fast so soon. Yeah, well, the question with Rance, and someone did say this to me, it's like we got excited and I, yeah, okay, he ran in a straight line and got excited. The problem is going to be the, the agility and sideways movement. Well, if it is a problem. Yeah, he might have done problem. everything in his power. I guess the more intriguing question would be, and the judgment that Richmond have to make is whether Rance coming back early will have will give him a heightened chance of re-injuring that knee. Hmm. But then the, the kind of intriguing thing is, so say hypothetically he came back early and there was a 30% higher chance than he of him re-injuring his ACL because he plays finals. So the common logic in AFL is kind of always that this year is the year that matters. So how much do you then take into If Richmond think they can win it, do you risk him with that extra risk? Because I don't actually think or, that's the question. Or do you hold him? What's the question then? The question, as from a doctor's point of view, would be, do we have all the information possible to make the best case decision? And then it's just on Rance and the team. Mm. So Richmond can go, are we risking him? But you're risking him every time he goes out on the ground. Mm-hmm. After the Every well, player is yeah, going yeah, out yeah. there. with No, yeah. every player healthy yeah. is going out there with the risk of being concussed, injured, suspended, whatever. So Absolutely. every time's a risk. Mm-hmm. So it's just with the information given, are we making the best possible decision? So even if Alex Rance is presented with the fact that you can play on grand final day, you've passed the fitness test, you're good enough uh, with the game plan, like the coaches want to pick you, the doctors have said there's a 10% chance that you come out of this healthy and 90% chance you do another ACL. If Rance says yes, the football club says yes, and the doctors say yes, then it's yes. And it's the right decision regardless of whether or not he does an ACL. Because mm. everyone had all the information mm. possible. They all went there knowing what was going to happen and what could happen. And that's how medicine works. Like, you can take a, a gr- aggressive um, tax to procedures, like brain surgeries, they often, often use one, and usually there's a 90% chance you die and a 10% chance you survive. It's not the wrong decision to take the brain chance. Like, that's again, so it's just on what does the patient want mm. and have they been presented with all the information possible. Where it gets tricky is like in the NFL at the moment where there are there seems to be cases where 
players have not been told all the right information, especially around concussions. So yep. It's like, yep. Yep. oh, no, yep. you're not concussed. That's just a different thing. Mm. And then they get another concussion, and yeah. then it's mm. when they don't know. But if you do know, then that's your choice. Yeah. But I do think, okay, so England, Richmond, England, how do we get to England? <laughs> Richmond get all the information. Yeah. And I still think how you weight the importance of this year's finals versus of potentially. But there'll be, no, there'll be no difference, most likely. Okay. So if they, if they, if they reach to the point where he gets to play, he gets the choice to play, or they, they, he gets put to the selection table, it would not matter if he plays that week, next week, three months' time. They won't put him to the selection table until he's at the best possible situation health-wise to play without causing further injury. So if he gets selected, that's why he got selected. Mm. It's not because they're risking him for a final, because that's not how doctors work. And that's how, that's how they definitely don't work that way in the AFL at the moment. Not often we get everyone together. It's getting more and more difficult with our travel and, and with the young family. So this is a good chance to get everyone together. And What are you wearing? I'm wearing an Elsa costume. So my two girls, Lottie and this is Sage, and she's dressed up with Elsa and Anna. Do you know Frozen? Yeah. Do you like Frozen? Yeah. Yeah, it's one of my favourite movies as well. Any pies over the other side of the table there, Kate? I'm going to talk about Josh Kennedy just quickly before we move on, but in a different way. Like, yes, he had an amazing game, seven goals, 600th career goals, looking fantastic. Eagles are charging towards September and I'm very excited. He's a great beard. Um, But why I wanted to bring him up was just quickly to mention a video that the West Coast Eagles released at the tail end of last week, um, which was the video of the inaugural Eagles Baby Cup, which is the cutest thing that I've seen online all year. Um, A lot of people would know probably from a lot of the stories that came out of the grand final last year how family-focused West Coast is because a lot of the players have young children. So the club do a lot of things to try and get around um, the young parents and try and make that a really family-friendly environment. And what they did was do this little race where they got everyone in and they raced the babies and it was really cute and really fun. But what they did to sort of make it, I guess, a bit more, I don't know, raise the level of cuteness was um, the parents dressed the same as the children. And you saw a lot of cool things like, you know, matching shirts and bow ties and the shoeys all dressed up um, as NFL players and stuff like that. But for the parents who had um, young daughters, we saw a lot of players who dressed up um, as their daughter's favourite characters. And uh, you saw Jack Redden wearing a tutu and a tiara and there was someone dressed up as Emma Wiggle. And Josh Kennedy was dressed up as Elsa from Frozen um, because his two daughters love Frozen and they were dressed up as Elsa and Anna, the characters from the film. And we had young Elsa Simpson, who is uh, Coach Adam Simpson's young daughter, as the host for the day, going around and doing all the interviews, which is also super cute. Um, she's amazing. She's done that sort of stuff before. I'd check out those videos too because oh, I love that girl. Um, and she goes up and asks Josh Kennedy what, she's, what he's wearing. And he just sort of answers her and just says, I'm wearing this costume of Elsa because my daughters love it. And it's just so normalising of that outfit and what he's doing. And I just loved it because I think when I see those type of videos with men dressed in traditionally feminine outfits. There's just such a propensity to make it like very jokey and making fun of the men dressed up in women's outfits. And that sort of trope has been around sport for a long time as like a cheap laugh. And it's really gross. Um, But the way they did it in this video was celebrating the fact that they had young daughters who looked up to these type of role models and had their favourite characters and they embraced that. And it was really normalising and just ended up being really, really lovely. So Thanks, Josh Kennedy, for being even more awesome than I thought you were. Um, I love you. Hey, Case. Hey, Case. <laughs> Do you want to build a snowman? 
reindeers are better than people. Ren, don't you think that's true? How many times have you watched it? See, that's it? like I, I don't mind Frozen for kids. It makes perfect sense for kids, but like there are a lot of universal messages in there, Gordon. Mm. Right? I actually hadn't seen the entire. I'd seen it the first half hour twice, so I didn't realize Hans was a bad guy. Oh, until my mm. third watching, uh, and then I realized that Hans is a bit of a dick. Yeah, yeah, he is. So, mm. Yeah, great film. The snow glows white on the mountain tonight. Not a footprint. To receive a kingdom of isolation, and it looks like I'm the queen. <laughs> Moving on and upwards to the people's question this week. So, the swimming world champs have been rolling on in South Korea. We have had uh, a variety of different disputes about drugs in Olympic sports. So, the question we're asking this week as the people's question is whether Australia's attitude to uh, I should put this run in uh, commas. Drug cheats um, from other countries, hypocritical. So this kind of started off with Mac Horton um, protesting Sun Yang on the podium and or rather not on the podium by refusing to take the podium with him when he won a gold medal in the first week. It's been compounded by an Australian athlete in Shana Jacks failing both her A sample and her B sample. Um, she was withdrawn from the event, citing personal reasons on the eve. Um, Swimming Australia at the time weren't forthcoming with why um it only has emerged now that her b sample has tested positive that she has um the 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 fullness of this story has come out so my first question really for you guys um is whether all breaches of the water code are one and the same so within the different cases we mentioned here there's a lot of intricacies because as we were talking about off air gordon this code is pretty complicated in a lot of ways Mm, yes, it is complicated because I don't understand any of it. Um, I'm someone who doesn't really follow closely a lot of Olympic sports. So when these issues come up, I find as a sports fan in general, like I conflate them together all the time. So I couldn't tell you the difference between any of the sanctions for different types of levels of drugs, whether they be like, I, mean, I don't even know the different types, like performance enhancing or banned or um, what were we talking about before? They could be just listed as dangerous or untested. Like, I don't know any of this. So when I see these sort of things come up, I just put them under the same umbrella all the time, which then I think is really problematic because then as a sports fan, I probably think the same thing about all of these athletes. And then those labels, like you mentioned, in italics, like drug cheats, mm. just sort of becomes really commonplace, which then does complicate the narrative because it is so complicated. There needs to be more discussion I think around these issues for sports fans before we start getting into these like really damaging conversations. Yeah 100% it's kind of like I suppose analogies are kind of good for this if people don't know the intricacies of the wider code but it's like you get, getting a driver to getting a driving ticket and then being done for like systematic fraud are two different things they're both illegal they both get you in trouble with the police mm. Mm. but you're not it's not the same. You're trying to pick at something here? You definitely it, was are. A, it was definitely just the first thing that came to my head. Um, <laughs> Mildly annoying. Anyway, um, so the Fairfax Mastheads or the nine Fairfax Mastheads, whatever they are these days, ran sort of different op-eds. So Andrew Wu came, had this over, overarching thread where obviously Mac Horton protest Sun Yang, who has been convicted of having or uh, failing a drug test. Um, he has now also been convicted of something entirely different, which we'll get to. Um, but the point in this piece really was that he should have also been protesting against his own teammates. So we had two Australian swimmers in Thomas Fraser Holmes and Jared Port who were suspended for 12 months in 2017 for missing three drug tests in a calendar year. 
which then leads to a 12-month suspension, which is different to failing a drug test straight out, which is what Sun Yang did the first time. Which is why I disagree with the piece from from mm. Wu. Is like no, that's not what that's not what Horton's actually protesting. He's protesting the fact that an athlete he has to compete against, he believes has an advantage because they take a substance or substances that are against the laws of the sport because they give that athlete an yeah. advantage. And then now whether or not now whether or not that alone as a fan is like good enough because well you know Thornton has the has government funding in the AIS which gives him an advantage because he gets all this all this ability and all this time to just be a full-time athlete versus like other countries where they don't have those uh, same uh, same availabilities. So again it's all very tricky just like yeah. is he is he right to make this protest? Yeah. But I don't think Again, that's like saying, like, do you protest a fraudster versus a parking ticket? Like, his teammates missed, his teammates copped some parking tickets, and Sunyan's actually been like taken to the like arbitration of sport. So yeah, well, the so the case is about to go before CAS. Mm. Yeah, the that's new, what I was about case. to ask. Because is it more about his protesting that he shouldn't be competing now while this is going on, whereas those athletes had already served their suspensions? Yeah, correct. So it's, it's completely yeah. different. Well, and this is where it's tricky because Fina. Much like the AFL absolved the Essendon players, FINA found Sun Yang not guilty. So the allegation in this instance was that he destroyed evidence at a yes. blood test. So mm-hmm. he, he smashed vials of blood with a hammer, or his team did while they were there. But the reason FINA found him not guilty was because only one of the three drug testers had the appropriate accreditation, and they also filmed him and took photos, mm-hmm. which is a breach of athlete confidentiality. So this instance, there's quite a bit of grey area yeah. over le- the legitimacy of the test itself. Mm. So how this goes at CAS remains to be seen. The question then with Horton is, is his protest still now just about the fact that Sun Yang has already failed and been found guilty of having a banned substance in his system? He's been found guilty of that already, which is a completely different offence to this offence. Well, that's what that's what he's protesting, and that's mm. fair enough because I think that they're two separate questions. So, like, does Horton have the right to not stand on the podium? Sure, like one hundred percent. That's his decision. Like he he has beef with Sun. Like that's that's at the end of the day, mm. he just they just have beef, and we've seen beef with athletes all the time, and most of the time we kind of like beef. Mm. And it, like what he did was no different to not giving a handshake to someone you don't like playing against in an, on, on a footy field, or not going giving someone a hug after the 800 meters at the Olympics or whatever. Like it's not that big a deal. But like whether I, as a sports fan and like the patriotic Australian sports person, should be like, yeah, you go Horton, you're proving a point. Well, that's different. Mm. Like I don't think he's, I don't think he's standing up for like the the clean sport movement by doing this. So See, because as like- you said, like. His teammates have been yeah. So did the convicted. media misrepre- did the media misrepresent or overhype his protest? Is probably another question. Uh, I don't think so because I think it's pretty significant because we don't see that happen a lot. So I think the hype was appropriate. I think where I have a different position than Gordon on that is I do believe in fundamental sportsmanship for competition. So I am behind him in not taking the podium in this instance, but it's only because I think he's speaking to something bigger than his own personal beef with um, with Son. I think it's he's trying to call out more of a conversation about the integrity of the sport and the process of the drug testing. I think if it was if he had served his suspension and that was all done and good and he hadn't had another discretion, I think then he should have taken the stand mm. because then it's by the, the books, everything's happened mm. how it should be. And I think in the element of sportsmanship that's what you should be doing. But I appreciate him taking this stand because there are more complications about this that he's trying to call attention to. But I still think athletes, if they just have a personal beef with someone, 
that is not on this level. I think they should be sportsmanlike or so sports person. To bring it to a football sphere, we go to the derby. Gaff and Brayshaw don't shake hands. So Brayshaw just goes, "You broke my jaw. I don't like you as a person. I'm not shaking your hand. I'm not having anything to do with you." That's bad sportsmanship, considering now that we meant to have this kind of post-game, well done, mate. Yeah, but I think is we're that, in is a... Is that fair enough? No, I think it's different now because I think you have we have an environment now where Gaff served a long-term suspension for that act. It mm. was incumbent on him to follow up with Brayshaw and apologise, which he did, and extend the olive branch. And I believe in a society where if you do that, if you do something you're sorry for and you ask for forgiveness, like you do, you come and make peace and you go about your sport and you play it in a sports person-like way. Because I feel like... The, the where I especially with swimming, so the, the the difference, but I feel like they have the same kind of philosophy. It's like there's a, there's a personal cost. So in, in Brayshaw's chance, it's in Brayshaw's case, it's physical injury. So he had a broken jaw, and I feel like if I was Brayshaw, I wouldn't shake Gav's hand. Cause it's like you, you, there's no there's no scenario where that's necessary to punch me in the face. You did yeah. that. I don't I don't respect you. And then for him in the Thornton uh, Yang situation, is. Uh, like cost to your income. So the the number one thing that most athletes get concerned about is you're taking um, like income opportunity medals away from me by being fraudulent. So you are not this fast. You could not swim this fast if you didn't take those substances. The same thing in cycling. The same thing. That's that's kind of the argument. Mm. And they go when they when they say we want like a clean athletics, we want clean cycling, we want clean swimming. Because it's an endurance sport, like the actual, there's, there's skill to it, obviously, but there's also just like who can go faster for longer. And if you do that without, with outside the rules of the game, then you are being fraudulent. You are taking income that isn't yours because you don't have the ability to get it. So mm. I think that's what Thornton is actually trying to mm. point out: is actually, well, no, what he's doing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to acknowledge his success by winning this race because I don't think he did it fairly, which I think yeah. is fair enough. But that is very much an individual thing as opposed to him being the poster boy for clean mm. Well, I think the more interesting, the protocol breaches are kind of one thing within mm. this code. The Shana Jacks example compared to Sun's first failed drug test is probably even more interesting because the immediate conversation around this is when this was announced and Jacks put on our Instagram, it came with a statement that said, I didn't take this substance knowingly. I'm not a drug cheat. This was from essentially something in my diet that's been contaminated with the substance. Um, I'm just trying to find that. It's uh, Lingandrol, which is a non-steroid anabolic agent popular with bodybuilders. So the essentially she's going, I'm not a drug cheat. I'm not a drug cheat. And I think that um, whether you believe that or not, all the conversation now is that her manager has come out and said that they will check her diet and go through and try and find out where this thing came from. So there's an element of this that is almost benefit of the doubt to the Australian athlete. And I don't think we... Um, apply the same logic to Sun when he failed that test in 2014. Definitely not, and especially not when Dawn Fraser comes out and compares what Sun's doing to the regimes of systemic cheating from East Germany, which has mm. huge geopolitical ties to the World War, and then the Soviet Union's case, which has political ties to the Cold War. And it's like those are the that's the main issue. So it's a Chinese athlete who comes from a, a political system that's not similar to Australia and that has no real al- like ally, political allies. So American athletes have been found guilty of, of, of being having banned substances yep. across all sports. One very famous one, Mr Lance Armstrong. So it's they hardly the same with same with England. The same with most major sporting countries have all had drug cheats or just cheats in very levels yeah, various levels. And it, I just find it I find it strange what Australia gets upset at. 
So we had like the tamper gate, ball tampering gate in cricket only a year ago. The whole thing melted down, but then you can take, you can be found to have a banned substance in your body and we'll get, let it slide. It's just so weird. But then if you're from another country, then it's very different. Well, there always is grey area yeah. because the reality is it is entirely feasible that um, you don't necessarily know what you're taking. And the way the water code is, it, your intent is irrelevant. It, it doesn't factor in intent. The substance is in your system. Do you think luck. the media would report this the same way if it was a Spanish athlete? No, because I don't, the reason I say that is I don't think the way that uh, the Sun Yang protocol breach or the smashing of the vial has been reported would have been... I think it would have been reported with more sympathy if it was a protocol breach by an Australian athlete. I think Greg Baum wrote that the idea of an athlete's team smashing a vial of blood is almost like the Cladderstein example of being a blood uh, a drug cheat, and that's kind. Of, he said that that's kind of the view. Like when you just put that statement there, it's pretty compelling. But then when you nut down into the technicalities of why that why they did that, the story is a lot more complicated, and I don't think that's been reflected in the broad. Yeah, public and especially mm-hmm. if it's two un, unidentified, unauthorized uh, collection people. Correct. It's like, well, then why would you give you? I wouldn't give my DNA, like my blood, to Correct. anyone that didn't have the right to have it. Correct. So I would smash it, um, even if I, even I had, even if it was just like at a medical clinic. Correct. Mm. Um, and so, Mike, and I guess when you go, then go back to the two, sw- the two Australian swimmers who broke protocol because they missed drug tests. It's like, oh well, that's your life's really hard. You're a swimmer, and you, there's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of things that are put on you, and a lot of demands that are put on you. Um, and so, I guess that is really the the duality that you're dealing with. Um, I guess, and you kind of mentioned. Um, the East German example. And I think that there is a really inc- interesting question and cutting this back to footy a little bit about doping in team sports versus doping in individual sports and where the accountability for that lies. Because I feel like, well, the Essendon, there was a lot of sympathy for the Essendon players, again, that I don't think would have been afforded to, uh, for example, Russian athletes. I think part of that is the myth around individual sports. Mm-hmm. Because you go like, oh, it's an individual sport, like like the swimmer is just swimming by themselves day in, day out, and then competing for Australia, when in reality they all have teams. So as I said, like they're going to go back and check what she ate over the last 12 mm. months to find out where mm. this drug came from. No, That's because she has a dietitian and a physiologist and a doctor and a physio and a coach. And a manager. And a manager yeah. and a bunch of training mates. Like It's all team effort. Same with tennis. Like Tennis entourages are huge. So there, there is a sense of team, and, be, and you have that because you trust them. So the same with the Essendon case. It's this myth that swimmers are by themselves when really a swimmer outsources all of this. They outsource their diet. They outsource their uh, their vitamins and their all those kind of macros and all that kind of stuff for the sake that they can just focus on swimming and recovery. And, like, yes, the difference, I suppose, is that they have agency in the sense that they are kind of CEO of brand swimmer, brand runner, brand cyclist versus yeah. the Essendon situation in more traditional team sports where you are kind of the soldier and you just do what you're told. Which is why I think we have that, and we and like most people have played footy to a level and being told but do by do something by a person from a footy club or a netball club or whatever like sporting environment you grew up in. Whereas not many have been an elite swimmer. So when you did do swimming, even if you swam kind of competitively as a youngster or whatever, you did so individually, or maybe you had swim club, but you didn't have a dietitian and you didn't. So you your own connection to those mm. stories is different because you go, oh, swim is a solo. Sports like footy is a team sport. Because mm. there wasn't, oh, I didn't think a lot of um, sympathy for Russian athletes after Sochi, where they were in 2014, where there was a state-sanctioned doping program, essentially. Yeah, 
Um, and some of the evidence that's come out of that and the whistleblowers who set, that there was significant pressure on athletes to dope um, in much the same way that there was significant pressure on the Essendon players. But I just think that goes back to the point that uh, Greg Bourne made in his column about the fact that with international sport, it's always viewed through a prism. The Chinese swimmer and the Australian swimmer are always viewed through a nationalistic yeah, ideal. 100%. So my final question to round this conversation out is there are so many ambiguities, and we spoke earlier off air about the fact that the Essendon players were convicted of taking, eventually, thymosin beta-4, which is because it's it's an unregistered, unknown substance. So mm. there's a potential risk to the athletes, et cetera, et cetera. And that constitutes a violation. So there are so many ambiguities in this that... And again, we just wonder whether open slather sport is a more fair example or a way of doing things. I think yes. Now, the only concern... So I think part of it, part of the wider protocol is like an even playing field, this this pretend myth that exists in sport that you can create this even playing field, which doesn't exist. Like there are always teams that have advantages whether they're countries or clubs or in the professional realm, professional teams that have the advantage because they have better coaches or better systems or better facilities or whatever, better drugs in some cases. But um, I think the other part of what the WADA protocol is about is making sure that people don't do undue harm to themselves either deliberately or without their own knowing. And there's always these questionnaires that come up and whether or not they're found in proper academic research or not, but it's always a question like, would you sacrifice your life for a gold medal? Like, would you take drugs? Would you take a substance that's so dangerous that there's like a mo- it's like ninety percent likely that you'll die after the event, like in the immediate aftermath of the event, but still win the gold medal? And these athletes, these unnamed athletes and un- unnamed sample size, say yes. So that's why water exists to an extent as well to prevent mass chaos where athletes just become guinea pigs for medical mm. experiments, and we have people dying of heart attacks because they take anabolic steroids and they're juiced up to the to the guts and they explode over the finishing line. Which is kind of like the slippery slope argument that uh, doctors and people in the science sphere say that will happen if we become like an arms race. Because then it just becomes like we had the arms race with the space race. We've had the arms race a little bit even in swimming with the suits. The one we haven't had yet is drugs. Mm. We haven't created this kind of like new species of superhuman via any sort of either substance or genetic manipulation. I just the hardest thing is where you draw that line is incredibly difficult because things like caffeine are fair game. Well, now never used to be, but yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of like so there is there's an interesting amount of things that you can legally take um, from you know things like energy drinks to so yeah. where you draw the line is because again, and you made the point of when you you talk about Olympics um, and supersuit access is a really interesting one because that was predominantly in swimming dominated by the three the three major swimming nations in the world. And if you're an Ethiopian swimmer, you wouldn't have had access well, to Well, South Africa swimmers probably more likely because at that stage they were, and even the Dutch to the extent, were the kind of the two on the periphery behind Australia and America in the massive kind of swim race, mm. the swim arms race. So, yeah. But that happens across, yeah, all sports. I suppose I think from a, like, are you a person, Casey, that kind of tunes in and out of the Olympics every four years. Mm-hmm, definitely. So, are you, so what's your opinion then on like, would you care? Would you tune in at all? If you knew that they could all be juiced up, because it's kind of the thing like the Tour de France is the another sport where after the Lance Armstrong trial went through and he omitted 
and then came out and kind of went full dirty laundry on it. And he went, that's a horrendous case. It's probably never going to be superseded ever because he had fraud and he had kind of like strongman uh, tactics and all that kind of stuff. But casual cyclists kind of, casual cycling fans kind of just left it. Mm-hmm. And it's never really recovered since. And athletics went back through the Olympic, uh, through World Cups and stuff um, after they had like the dirty race in Seoul. So would you just, go, oh, who cares? Like, they're all on drugs. I don't want to watch it. Or would you go, they're all on drugs, so I can watch it. It's just just the same stuff. No, I'd definitely switch off. I think for me, that kind of sport um, that I do dip in and out of every four years because I don't really follow closely a lot of those events um, in non-Olympic years. And the reason I tune in during the Olympics is because those are the type of sports that – I buy into the narrative of these uh, opportunities that only come along every so often. These are athletes that train their guts out all their lives for these tiny opportunities and glimpses of getting a medal. Um, The story, like the human story of that is what appeals to me. And it's that story of trying to work towards a goal your whole life. And if I knew that that was being tampered with in that way, then that story loses all of its appeal to me. So I wouldn't care about it because the human narrative of that elusive goal, training, working hard, trying to realise your dreams, like that's what I buy into as a sports fan. Like that's because I'm not an athlete. I don't go out there and train my guts out for a sport. I just like to watch and I connect with sport through the story of it. So if that's taken away because I know these athletes can just get on whatever they want to get on and just rock up to the Olympics and be amazing, then I don't care. Like anyone can do that. But I know that's not true. Because yeah, I know it's yeah. way more complicated than that. But as someone who's sitting outside as that kind of, I don't know, armchair fan, that's how I would perceive that. I would be like, well, I could go get this drug and go to the Olympics next year if I want to. And I don't care about doing that. I know I can't, but I'm just saying that's the optics of it to me at a very top line level. And I think that's a problem. For, I mean, that was a problem in 2016 for the Olympic movement because Russian athletes were still able to compete. Mm. And so I guess the broader problem when you have something that's very easily easy to objectively measure, i.e. you swim X amount fast, you run X amount fast, you jump so high, I, the performance-enhancing drugs have surely a much bigger impact than they would in a team sport like AFL, which until Essendon has largely been immune from this, other than small individual cases. So in terms of the purity of your sport and what we look to, I think that there's a question for the future about whether people will keep looking to the Olympics despite these scandals or whether they and or whether their attention will just divert to focus on homegrown team sports that they can trust. See, my interest in that is what we seem is like what we deem is cheating. So because everyone the the kind of myth around uh, drug cheats is they take these drugs to go faster on game day or run day or this race is like day. You've stolen a point off Dino here. And it's like, no, that's not why you take drugs. You take drugs so you can train more yeah. and recover faster. It's, yeah, yeah, that yeah, is that yeah. is because like the drugs that make you go faster. Well, a, they're so they're so obvious. Like you could do a line of coke and you'd run faster, but you're gonna get found out when you pee in the cup straight after the finishing line. So like no one's doing that. So that's all these things like EPL and all that kind of stuff aren't when that's not the purpose of them. But then so if the purpose of taking performance enhancing drugs or any drugs that are outside the wider code is for recovery purposes, well then okay, now we're saying you can't recover in certain ways. So it's okay to have a hyperbaric chamber which are super expensive, which some countries can't afford to give their athletes. So now there's an, that's why I talk about the uneven playing field. Taking certain anabolic steroids is a lot cheaper than it is to build you a, a chamber that, is, that sucks out the oxygen in the space. And so, and that, and, but that's, that's, a, that's a legal practice. So like sporting clubs have that. 
Yes. And football, footballers did it all the time to come back from injuries quicker than what they what they could do na- naturally, in inverted commas. And we also live in this modern world where, like, who lives a natural life? Who is not taking a supplement? Who is not trying multivitamins? Who is not trying some weird diet? Who is, like, even in our day-to-day lives, we are all trying things to live better lives. And part of that Olympic movement is, you know, what, stronger, faster, higher? Yeah, 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 yeah. Part of that is medicine. Mm. So for mine, it's like, so long as it's not going to turn into this ridiculous state where, you know, where they're literally athletes are exploding and being sacrificial lambs. Probably the most interesting part is, so I'm massive into athletics and massive into marathons. And at the moment, there's a project called uh, Enos 159. So it's the attempt to break the two-hour barrier for the marathon, which is probably the last big barrier since the four-minute mile. But they're doing it out of space because they can't, you can't do these things in, in race environments. So they're, they're trying to find the best place to run it and the best altitude and the best shoe and the best training plan, and they've invited a certain select group of runners. They're going to run behind a car. They're going to try and run 42.2 kilometres in less than two hours. Now, that's amazing. There's not going to be a gold medal. It's not going to be Olympics. It's not even going to be something that like, any person can do. There's no aspirational element to it other than how cool is the human race that we went, let's try and do that thing and do it. It's like the athletic version of landing on the moon. I knew you'd say that before you said it. It's kind of like yeah. pointless but cool. And the offshoot is that when we landed on the moon, we came back with like, oh, did you know that Teflon is actually used in this way? And so that's the same thing. Like, did you know actually that training in this way or this genetic code or this shoe or this fabric or whatever can it, you don't know what you can get by being innovative mm. and in a way i think that's kind of what's cool about the olympics for me is that it lets you get a little insight into these like elite elite examples but then also you can take your own little bit and improve your own life mm. from something you've heard or seen or can mm. consume or buy or whatever we did a really interesting thought experiment just talking on the equality and the availability of hyperbaric chambers at the olympics like year eight so it was 2008 where we worked out like the gold medal count you had based on your gross domestic product. Mm. So your ability to spend money on sport. Because the more and more research you do into athletic performance at the Olympics, the more you realise that it's so heavily vested in your investment. So like Britain before London 2012, when it was their home games, poured all sorts of money through their lottery into different sports and reaped the rewards. Mm. So That's also why we get so upset... Mm. From like a national sphere, when countries like Russia and China cheat, because it bites back into the geopolitical stance of, the, of our history with them, mm. and that's why, and that's also why the Russians cheated systematically. It's because they wanted to show that we can just be as big and strong and powerful as US. I think the issue is is just making sure that else. Boarding bodies and our media report more about the shades of grey to contextualise those Correct. issues because I think right now it's very sensationalist. And for someone like me who does dip in and out of this stuff, I only read top line stuff. So I'm just going to buy into that narrative of drug, drug cheats and thinking that it's all corrupt and evil, which I'm sure there are a lot of issues of corruption at these sporting organisations and particularly on a global scale because of course there is um but yeah let's just do our due diligence with this sort of stuff and talk about them on a case-by-case basis and make sure all of that areas are covered so we do have more educated sports fans the real fan casey simons lily held the water of tickets in her hands flicking them like playing cards as she waited impatiently in the bitter cold melbourne wind outside gate five of the melbourne cricket ground where are they all her team would be running through the banner any minute. 
Ever since her father started taking her to games with him when she was a little girl, the superstition of being in your seat to watch the team run through the banner had stuck. It was bad luck to miss it, and she couldn't do that to her boys. Being her seat at the right time was her role she played for the team. Finally, she spotted Jack bouncing up the stairs, and she released a breath of relief. At least she could tell him to wait outside with the tickets if the rest of the group was much longer. She was not going to let her team down. Hey, mate. He gave Lily a big bear hug, and she was temporarily warmed in the wintering afternoon. Hey. She squeezed him back and dutifully handed him a ticket. Cheers. How much do I owe you? She told him, and he gasped. Really? Wow. That's more than I thought. Lily frowned. These are premium seats, Jack. Second level on the wing, the best seats in the house. Yeah, I guess I'm still learning all this, hey? He smiled at her. Jack had never really been into football. He'd been a competitive rower all his young life and never had the time. He'd given up the sport now after a shoulder injury and was able to spend more time with Lily, one of his best friends from high school. And if he wanted to hang out with her, he learned quickly that he had to do it at the MCG in the winter. She never missed a home game. But he was slowly coming around to it. He liked the ritual of attending the game with his friends, wearing a ridiculously bright-coloured scarf and having a hot pie with some beers. It was something he'd missed all of his life, rowing alone down the Yarra, the comfort of friends in the sports space. He handed Lily the cash. Where are the others? Good question. I can't believe how late everyone is. I might head in and leave you here. Leave me here alone? Jack exclaimed. Yeah. You don't care as much as I do. Jack laughed, but he thought Lily was being a little bit unreasonable. There was still plenty of time until the start of the game. He didn't understand why she was getting so flustered. Hey, guys! They both turned around and saw Luke and Sarah approaching, wearing their matching Guernseys. Lily forced a smile. Sarah was definitely committed to winning Luke over, but this was trying too hard. Sarah didn't even like football when she first met Luke. He told Jack and Lily this after they first started hooking up. Lily told him to break up with her, but Sarah seemed determined to put her claws into him and conveniently become a football fan very quickly. Lily eyed her up and down. She seemed to be playing the part. Black skinny jeans, appropriate yet tasteful boots, black long sleeve top under her Guernsey, and her long dark hair ironed straight under her beanie. She made a very convincing fan. Hi, Lily. Sarah hugged her. Hello, lovely. Lily tried to be nice for Luke's sake. She'd been friends with him for longer than Jack, but Sarah was just so annoying. So good to see you. Sarah flashed a smile at Lily and then gave Jack a big hug. Sarah got the feeling that Lily didn't like her that much. She always found a way to sit between her and Luke at a game so they could always analyse the game together. She didn't mind so much, though. Luke was terrible company at the football. She preferred to sit with Jack, who was nice to her. When they first started dating, Luke had told Sarah how much he loved it and she thought it wasn't going to work. Sarah had no interest in football. She played netball and went to dance classes. Her dads both hated football. She got the feeling from them that football had never really been kind to them, that the kids who played footy in school were not their friends. But when Luke took her to her first game, she fell in love with it. It was the most intense sport she'd ever seen. The pace of it, the hits, the contest, the athleticism, completely won her over. Sarah called the football club the very next day and signed up as a member. Look at you. Luke is a lucky man to have a football fan as a girlfriend now, Jack teased. She didn't have a choice, Luke laughed. I told her we'd break up if she didn't follow my team. Now at least make it through the end of the season. Lily joined him in his laughter while Sarah and Jack shared a subtle eye roll. Lily and Luke were the craziest football fans they both knew. Sarah thought maybe they they should be together, and maybe they would be. Sarah was actually the one who thought her relationship with Luke would soon be over. Sarah liked Luke a lot. She thought he was a great guy, smart and ambitious. He was going to be a lawyer. But he did something to her last night. She told him to stop, 
Well, at least she thought she did, but maybe she didn't. But he didn't stop anyway, and he didn't use protection. They always did. But he didn't ask not to. It just happened. He said sorry afterwards, that he was just too into it and that she felt good. He double-checked that she was on the pill, and she said yes, and that was it. She didn't sleep at all last night. She wasn't okay, but she knew she was going to the footy the next day and she really wanted to go. She wanted to let the game she now loved make everything better. She wanted to escape. She was probably making a big deal out of nothing. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Dylan came running up to them and hugged Lily around the waist. You're late. Lily punched her playfully on the shoulder. I know, I know, she cried, but I had to run to the merchandise van to get this. She flashed the player badge she just purchased. Lily shook her head at her. You're pathetic, she teased. Dylan's first game was only last weekend and now she claimed to be hooked. Dylan fell in love with the team's captain was more like it. Lily wished she was just at the game with Luke. Everyone else seemed to be here for the wrong reasons. They weren't real fans. Maybe Jack could be, but the others, she didn't think so. Lily sighed. Hopefully she could just sit next to Luke and ignore everything else until the final sign. Football was just too important. She didn't want to share it with people who didn't take it as seriously as she did. Lily handed out the tickets. Book Club this week is a little short story from our very own Casey Simons, who's in the booth to talk about this one. It's called For the Real Fan. It was covered in SoFi Zine, if I pronounced that correctly. Yes. Um, so, Case, why did you write this? What was your motivation? Um, well, before I get into that, I actually just wanted to quickly thank you guys for being so supportive of my writing. Um, this has been, like, I think this is the third time I've been on here talking to you guys about the writing that I do. So thank you both for giving me this platform and for being so supportive of that work. Never it's thank really us for our platform, Kathy. You deserve it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, the motivation for writing this story... Um, So for those of you who know, um, I do work in the academic space. That's kind of my background. Um, A doctor. (laughs) I am a doctor. (laughs) Um, And my background has been sort of trying to find ways to amalgamate academic research into examples of creative writing. And it's a really niche space. So throughout my uh, PhD work, um, that's what I was trying to do. But I was also trying to find ways that I could do more of it in different kind of ways as well. And... I was unaware of this zine um, before last year when I went to the Australian Sociological Association Conference at Deakin University. And I was talking to a colleague of mine at the University of Queensland, Rebecca Olive. Shout out to her. Um, She's a legend. Um, Actually, do look up her work because she does a lot of cool stuff in this space about um, women surfing. So if you're interested in surfing, she does a lot of cool research around literature and creative writing in that space. But moving on... um, when she was uh, talking to me about my work and she pointed um, out to me another academic, um, Dr. Ashley Watson, who works out of the University of New South Wales in Sydney, who runs this zine, which is all about creative writing that is inspired by sociological research. And at that time, I was looking at some research by Dr. Kim Toffoletti, who is at Deakin, and um, Dr. Peter Buett, who is um, since retired from Deakin. And they wrote a paper about sort of how some female fans come to be female fans of Australian rules football, and they broke them down into four categories. And I was doing some work around that. And when I'd had this conversation with Beck at the conference, this idea just kind of sparked me. And I just thought, wouldn't it be a really cool exercise to try and write a short story or do something creative with these four groups of fans that have been identified in the research and try and think of a way to creatively bring them all together on a scene and see how they interact with each other. And that's kind of how this story was born. 
Do you want to let listeners know what those fans are? Yes. So I'll cite the paper, of course. So um, the research paper is called Finding Footy, Female Fan Socialisation and Australian Rules Football by the aforementioned Peter Muir and Kim Toffoletti and was published in 2011. So the research that they did through a lot of interviews um, with female fans of Australian Rules Football, um, they sort of found uh, four common themes and then they grouped them into these categories. They are called In the Blood, Learner, Con convert and um, STF, which stands for sexually transmitted fan, which I actually find really fun. (laughs) Um, So to break down those categories, (laughs) in the blood means um, the person had been sort of ingrained in football culture from birth. So it's come from parents and sort of, you know, we know that story very well. If your parent goes to the team, they kind of just like assume their child is going to go for the team and you're just indoctrinated into that fandom. Um, Learner, who's someone who just sort of comes along through like sort of constant attendance to football and sort of gradually sort of comes to um, to love it. Convert is kind of that, um, I don't know, that come to Jesus moment. You have that really organic experience from one game or one touch point and you're just sold. So you're just there. And then the sexually transmitted fan is um, if you're being introduced to it through um, sort of a sexual partner or your boyfriend or a girlfriend or someone like that, who's trying to push their fandom on you, I guess, and you kind of get converted into the culture that way. So they were the, the four main characters that they identified in the female fans that they interviewed. And they're the characters that I tried to portray in my story. Is there any <laughs> uh, research into like general fan than then, like across all genders, as opposed to just female fans? Yes. Are they similar in the terms of like the funnels that you come into the sport in or are they slightly different? Um, from what I've seen across the research, it's mostly similar. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you're looking in like male fans in isolation, then it usually is mostly in the blood or learner. Um, that it's it's mostly just from like cultural standpoint is like it's just expected that they would go along to football matches or, and this, I'm t- talking specifically about Australian rules football yep. fans here um, because that's the research I primarily engage in. So yeah, it's kind of just... And that's historically just been the expectation that usually if, if you're a man, you must be into Australian rules football, particularly if you're in Victoria, and that's how your fandom kind of develops. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff around that from, you know, some men don't want to engage in football in that way because it's not what they want to do, but it's expected of them. And that sort of plays into lots of roles of like issues of masculinity and all of that sort mm. of thing as well. So that's very interesting research too, but um, yeah, not research that I am specifically looking at in my work at the moment. Yep. So I got a couple of questions about kind of like the piece and its construction, and I think some of it ties into, as you mentioned, obviously that you it's like a research-driven creative piece. So I think a lot of it actually will draw in a conversation we've had previously about your work and your and your research, but also some interesting parts of the piece. So from what we've just heard, there's a mention of uh, two dads, and then there's a female character named Dylan. Are these kind of like deliberate decisions to kind of challenge what we see as like a normal? Um, a cohort in AFL stories or foot footy stories because I think I haven't really heard or read any footy fiction that has kind of challenges the whole heteronormative universal family type stories around footy. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's something that I've been very conscious in in my work. Like primarily, my PhD thesis was written because I wanted to give voice to more of the complicated nature of how different people experience football from a fan culture point of view because I think in terms of creative work, we don't see sort of a full scale of different characters in that space. Um, And I did that through a gender lens. Um, But the more I've worked in that space, the more I've come to see just how much it affects just other marginalised groups. So I think that's something that 
moving forward with my writing, I'm very conscious of because not that I want to, like, I don't think I could ever really give voice to a lot of different experiences. I only know my own and I don't want to speak for other people, but I do want to bring other you know, groups into that work because from my experience of my fandom, you know, these people are there. Um, that is my fandom. I do see these people at the football, but they're not represented in the literature that I read. So yeah, definitely a conscious choice, but also not conscious in a way that I'm trying to create something. I'm just trying to represent what my lived experience is at the football. Cause it is something that I don't see reflected back to me in the, in the content that I consume. I think you've done that well in this piece as well. The main, I think the main character, the central character is Lily. And if anything, she's the like the expert fan. So she's the fan that trumps all fans. Definitely the fans that she interacts with in the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that I would like to ask about is: is that role kind of like a critique on fandom or the or the AFL sporting space in general, where she kind of passes judgment on all of her all of her friends or acquaintances, or her invitees, but saying, "Oh, you're not here for the right reason, and you're late, and how dare you do this?" Is that kind of like? Um, an analysis on the sport and because I think at the moment footy's in this kind of to and fro between trying to expand the game and introduce people to the game and grow its audience versus like being authentic and, and real and true to the sport. Mm. Yeah, it's yes is probably the answer to all of that. But I'm back a bit further is, um, you know, the word that I focus on a lot and is the title of the piece is called the real fan because that word real is really interesting to me because what is real and what we deem as real is usually just the status quo and that becomes incredibly problematic. So I think in what I wanted to do with the character of Lily is kind of put all of that stuff in one person to see how they see outwardly at other people's experiences of sport and how that tradition over a long period of time of having that concept of a real fan is so damaging for all of those reasons because it does block other people from coming in um, because, and I think this goes back to the research that um, Toffoletti and Mewitt did in this paper, is there are so many different ways that people come to this game and we should not be deeming any of those ways as less authentic or less real than the other. But we do have this idea that if you haven't followed the game all your life, if you don't have your superstitions on game day, if you don't wear the right colours or are there in the right way, and I'm using the word right in air quotes here, I guess, um, but if you're not doing all those things, then your authenticity is questioned. And I think that becomes increasingly questioned when you do fall outside of that, you know, heteronormative, stereotypical, white, male, able, um, heterosexual man who can just walk through the gates and not be questioned at all. And if you are coming from a different background or a different experience and you do just want to check out our amazing game, it does become really fraught to be in that fan space because you have to question parts of yourself, you have to adapt. And sometimes it can be really unconscious where you can just adapt to that role that you think you're meant to play and you don't know what that means. And I think that is incredibly problematic as well. And that's a lot what I talk about in my research too, because I think that's definitely been my my experience. Like I have felt myself adapt to certain um, behaviours that I find now quite shameful and wish I hadn't have done that. But it was almost like a survival instinct because you see those quote unquote real fans and you see them being accepted and you think, well, I want that experience. So I have to be like that too. So I guess in this piece, I'm trying to show how damaging that is. Um, but also like try and question, you know, why she's like that too, because Mm. it's, you know, it's, it's not her fault. She's a, she's a product of a society that's kind of built her this way. It's interesting. We've got a new housemate at the moment who, 
um, has just moved over from Perth. And so his kind of Melbourne take, he went to the Richmond Port Adelaide game and barely knew who was playing. And he was like, oh, God, like, but I don't know and I, I'm not that into footy. I just went because it's a social experience. And I guess that having these conversations has probably changed my reaction to that a little bit because previously I would have been like, oh, no, you've got to have a teammate. Like, you've got to mm. have a team. You've got to fit in in Melbourne. Like, that's what you do. You just, yeah. pick, you just pick one and you jump on and you go. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, cool. If you don't, like, if that, just do what you do you. Like, whatever. Mm. Um, and, and by the same token, like, I can now much easier, more easily go to the footy with people who have any sort of fan dynamic without it pissing me off. And I don't know whether that would have been something that I'd been able to do multiple years ago. Mm. Do you take – so especially on the question there now is about, like, your own experience of, of fandom because that's a very – the pieces are very real, lived-in experience and probably an amalgamation of many experiences. Mm. But I feel like at least one of those circumstances of all those circumstances have happened to us. But it's like when do you – is the foot, is footy – as especially two diehard fans, is that your safe space? Is that a social space or is it an amalgamation of both? And I feel like you probably have two different perspectives because you're more diehard than you won't. You're not a bandwagon. You hate Carlton. You hate them winning <laughs> even when they suck. So <laughs> there's no there's no bandwagon there, whereas you're more likely probably to be go to a random game. I flick between them. Yeah. And I flick between them quite happily based on who I'm with, the dynamic in the group. I go off. I quite often go alone. Um, so it does vary. Mm. And I, so that's for me, like family is diehard space. So like if I go with dad or I go with my sister, we, we wear the hat. And then if I go... Is that um, conscious though? Like are you, is there a part, I suppose because like there's like a prep in most parts of society. Like mm. If you work in an office space, when you put on the suit, a lot of people say this, like they like wearing suits because it's their armour, it's their uniform. They go, now I'm a business person. The same with fandom. Is that with you, fandom? Like you put on your Richmond hat, you join up with your family, you go, here are the Bannisters, wear Richmond nuffies, and I know how to act for the next three hours. I don't know whether it's that conscious, but I just know like what I'm getting when I go to the footy with someone. Like so, so if I go with Gabs, I am happy to sit there and go, well, I kind of want Essendon to win. I'll have your, I'll go on the bandwagon here because that's what she's going to want. And much the same if I go with anyone. If I go to West Coast games with you. Well, you're a bit no, different. you're definitely a bit different because <laughs> I definitely get on the you. West Coast But like, if I go to a Melbourne game and it's a, a mate, like, so if I go with Ben, who's a Melbourne supporter, and it's just Melbourne, I'm generally pretty happy to sit there and that's, go. That's fine. That's fine. I'm happy in to terms jump of, on the wagon in terms of separate. But what happens when the Venn diagram crosses over? So, you and Gabs go to a Richmond game. So, are you are you being the Richmond nuffy even though a partner's there, or are you altering your behaviour to match the outside influence? I might be asking the wrong person. Um, oh, if it's unconscious, then it's unconscious. No, I still think I'm. I still think I'm the. I still think I'm the nuffy if Richmond are playing in that situation. Um, but then there are times where I go to a game of footy and I'll go with a couple of friends and it'll be a neutral game and I'll just kind of and to an extent it happens occasionally at Richmond games where I'll not be that into it and the conversational drift and I'm happy to go to the footy and have a chat as well. Sometimes the footy for mine is a perfect place to have a chat because for mine it's very hard these days in the uh, nouveau uh, Scandinavian cafe scene. It's all shiny and reverberating. It's so, it's, it, you feel self-conscious. It's almost like a library nowadays to go to a cafe. You don't get those spaces of like those little nooks of the perfect pub has a little nook where you're in a very public space, but you, can feel, you feel very private. Mm. 60,000 people at the MCG all yelling and carrying on and you have a group of you sitting around to chew the fat or to, or to have a very deep and meaningful conversation or a very difficult conversation. Mm. The footy's a great public private space because it creates this you have all this noise like no one's listening to you no one cares what you're saying 
but you but you feel like you're still in public. I do agree with that. That's a Fitzgerald line. I like big parties. They're so intimate. What I would say on that is, like, I've probably gone through a big transition with how I think about these things, obviously, <laughs> through um, doing all of this work and just becoming more aware of how I behave in these spaces. But, I mean, there would have been a time not too long ago that if I did see a group of people having a chat at the footy, like I would have instantly judged them for doing that at the footy because I was like, this is not a place to have Mm. a chat and have a conversation. Watch the football. This is why you're here and you're detracting from this experience from everyone else because we are all watching the football, Um, which is completely unfair because you can watch the football in, while having a chat. Yeah. While having a chat. And you can watch the football while other people are having a chat. Like, it's a big enough space. It's loud mm. enough. Like, you're not going to miss anything. It's fine. Um, so I do that occasionally now, particularly with you guys, because I probably go to games with you when my team's not playing and I feel more comfortable doing that. And I do enjoy that experience a lot more because I think I used to go to football quite armed up, armed up like you said before, because I would be like, I'm going with a particular group of people. I need to be on my game. I need to be playing this role to so I fit in. So I think I would be quite on guard. Um, when it's my team, I do usually go alone because then I want it to be my safe space, like you mentioned before. That's Mm. when I go there, it's my team, I like to be isolated and I just like to have that experience watching my team by myself because I'm quite selfish with sport because I think it's mine. Like, this is my team, this game is for me, this is my moment. Um, So I get very anxious when I go to see my team and you guys are around I don't like it. <laughs> I'm very nervous to go to West Coast Richmond in a couple of weeks. It is interesting. So you spoke about going to cafes. Hmm. And for me now, I have a, a group of friends mostly who are interested in footy. There are friends who I wouldn't invite to footy, but the vast majority I would get, say, oh, hey, you know what? Richmond are playing Carlton in two weeks. Do you want to come? I haven't seen you in a while. It's very much for me like, you know what? Let's go to brunch. But I find it a much easier social setting because if I'm sat across the table from someone at brunch, it's like, cool, we're going to have an hour and a half conversation. If I go to the footy, I'm like, well, there's natural like ebbs and it flows and I just feel a lot nicer in that. So, so like for me, going to Richmond West Coast with you really is just like, ah, oh, teams are playing. We go together. That's what you do. Like there's no risk factor attached to that mm. in terms of my own personal emotions in yeah, Richmond. for Lewis. you. There's no risk factor attached exactly, to you. Exactly, for me. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's the case for Casey because yeah, I yeah. now realise that it took you – it took us quite a bit of convincing to get you to agree to that. And that could have been an affront to me as a human, but mostly well, it was purely hmm. because I think, no, you, well, you don't go to West Coast games with anyone. No. Whereas I will happily go, oh, you're my friend that supports Melbourne. Mm. We're going to go and be the two mates who go to the game and it's our opposite teams. Yeah. And, like, that pretty much flows for all of the people that I know. I'll go, you, Richmond play Melbourne. Okay, cool, we're going. Richmond play Carlton. Okay, cool, we're going. Yeah. I think the other side of it too is that, Like, I think I still have a lot of issues with how, like, I perform as a fan in that space. And I I think that's something that I'm still wrestling with myself, like, based on the fan that I was, um, which I think was really problematic, and then trying to figure out the fan that I am. So I still think I actually have a lot of fear of the fan that I am in front of other people because I know the fan that I am at West Coast Games is kind of my most, and to use that word again, authentic, like, self. Like, it's... That's just it. Just comes out. I you can't can show control me who it. you really are, case. But you know, but I get caught up in that a lot because I think, well, you know, back in the day, like in my early twenties, to behave like that, the football is like, you know, well, people are going to think that you know I'm unfeminine or um, I'm too aggressive or I'm coming across in a way that isn't going to win me any friends in this space. You know what I mean? So I think that's that's a there's a lot of stuff there that I'm still trying to figure out. Um, 
And this is not to say that, like, I mean, I don't think I'm that bad at the football compared to from what I see from some other fans, but also to me, I still don't feel comfortable enough with myself in that space, which is funny because I did just describe it before as a safe space. Like there's a lot of complications, I think, for people in the fan, in fan cultures in general, really. But in the sports fan culture, I think it's still a lot. There's a lot there that I'm still not completely comfortable with. And that's yeah. why I do make very conscious decisions about who I go with and how to like isolate myself if I feel like I need to because I haven't come to like an answer with that yet. Yeah. The last question I'll have, and it's a bit of a change in tone, um, is about you mentioned uh, like a sexual uh, indiscretion that kind of is it's reflected upon in one of the characters' thoughts and then brought to the football. I think that's a deliberate ploy in terms of writing. And is that kind of um, bringing to awareness the fact that like what happens outside isn't is will always be brought to the game regardless of people see it as like an escape or like a kind of back to that conversation we have regularly that whilst sport is sport it is always somewhat connected at all times to everything else to do with life. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a huge part of it because uh, I think. I don't subscribe to conversations that, you know, sport and politics shouldn't mix or, um, you know, you, you leave everything out on the field and you walk away back to your life. Like I think sport impacts life and I think life impacts sport. And I think that can be really positive. And I think we talk about that in a negative way too often. But sport, and you know, it is a reflection of society and society's issues. And that scene, I think, does a lot of things. And primarily what I wanted it to do was put a character in a situation where she's made to feel very uncomfortable and unsafe, but also have questions about why and if it is actually something she should worry about. So I wanted to create a lot of doubt and um, uneasiness in someone who, if we're going back to the fan profiles, is one of those newer fans to the game and sort of explore what it means for people and in this example specifically for women when they are made to feel like they're not not treated on the same level and what that means when that is brought into the fan space and what she's trying to do, which I think is a reflection of what happens to a lot of female fans if they experience issues of sexual harassment or being whistled at or yelled at at the football and they love it is trying to wrestle with is it a big enough deal to walk away from the game or is this just part of the game or is this an incident that it doesn't mean anything so I will just keep watching so this character has um she would be classed as um the STF the sexually transmitted fan she's come to football through her partner and she loves it. And this indiscretion is really complicating for her because she wants to still be part of that world that she hasn't experienced before. She's found a space that she's really happy in and this person brought her to that. But then he's also done something to her that she doesn't really know what that means. So I think that's just trying to bring up a conversation for people to have around these things that happen to a lot of people in that space because it can be quite toxic and we do justify that as part of the culture, part of the game and something to be accepted, but we shouldn't because it is unacceptable for a lot of those things. But for fans, we the worst thing we do is rationalise things and it's really hard to stop thinking like that. I mean, 
drawing on my own experiences, there are definitely times that I've had some really horrific things happen to me in that space. And this is why I talk about the MCG in such a complicated way, because these things have happened there. But I still go back and Mm. it's because I'm not prepared to give up the thing that I love. And someone explained that to me as someone's like, well, that's really feminist. Like you're not giving up and you're not giving your space away. Like you're still going back and you're defiant. I'm like, well, I mean, you could read it that way, but at the same time, I think it's the opposite way that um, I don't think for the last few years, at least, like I haven't done it in a feminist way. Um, I've done it in a way that it's almost defeatist. Like I just accept that that will happen sometimes to me if I want to go. And I've accepted that, which I think is really awful. Um, and we shouldn't be thinking of it in that way, but it's hard. Like, Mm. you know, you're, you're part of the minority. You're against, you know, a hundred thousand people in the MCG sometimes. Um, that's what it feels like. So I think that scene is just trying to sort of look at that, I guess, from a really extreme point of view. And just trying to sort of see that through the lens of, I mean, what we are talking about earlier, those shades of grey, because it's not always cut and dry. And any football fan, depending on their level of fandom, and any sports fan for that matter, I think to tell them to give up on the game if they don't want to put up with things is just so unacceptable. So that's that's the conversation I wanted to have with that scene. So done for the week bit coming up in the week to come as we launch into another week of AFL with fast approaching the West Coast Richmond Smackdown. More on that at a later date. We are going to sample a new way of outroing the pod. Uh, Casey and I's creative writing hour has uh, maybe dropped a bit of fruit off a low-hanging tree. Uh, so JB's written a poem. I'm going to send you guys out with, with this little this little piece of work. It is called Ball because my ability to come up with titles is not as good as my ability to come up with poetry, apparently. Cool. Off we go. They're coming down the Yarra for me, garbed in their beanies, scarves, guernseys. Badges chink. Chatter floats. The light of the MCG pulls me in like moths to a flame. Bound for the glorious comeback, the gut-wrenching loss, the hiding and the underwhelming six-goal win. From that opening siren when I'm held aloft, presented to the horde like Simba, and then duly hurled into the turf, every eye is on me. The players will butcher me more often than I can count, sending me over the fence and into Rosie to be drenched in another goddamn pint of mid-strength. They will handball me one too many times, too many times, keeping the fat alive, but putting their mates under the cosh, and to the horde pleads, just kick the bloody thing. They will grope for me like a light switch in the dark as I wobble and bobble along the turf, elusive, my heart set on reducing the superstars to schoolboys. They will chase me, grappling and tugging and claiming they don't have me, their arms thrown back, their faces aghast. He's got my jumper, you green maggot. They will linger on me a moment too long, just pleased to have me in their clutches. And as they're slammed into the turf, the horde will issue my favourite guttural cry of all. Ball.